hello everyone to another episode of the edge um thank you all of you that come along and listen thank you for anyone that subscribes and we'd love you to subscribe um today we have a, a very special guest uh, we have an english person on uh, which is great for me maybe a little bit of kind of protection against john and his abuse um today we've got lisa forte on the call um so lisa first question the same as everybody else it's, it's never going to end this way um give us a little bit about the kind of background about yourself uh how you got started in your career and really how you ended up where you are today yeah, sure. Well, firstly, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me and inviting me. Um, so I actually started, I actually did a law degree, believe it or not. Um, and I specialized in international law and the law of armed conflict um, alongside maritime law. And that's what got me my first job to my parents' dismay, um, who you know had great aspirations for me to be this wonderful lawyer. Uh, and I decided I was going to go and work for a private security company who protected ships from pirates. So I think they were a little bit disappointed in their investment in my legal training had uh, gone to uh, gone to nothing. Um, so yeah, I worked for this company, and essentially we we we, we sort of fortified and protected ships from pirates, which uh, off the coast of Somalia at the time was an absolutely massive issue to to, to global trade, um, and and something a, a sort of battle we were largely largely losing. And, um, you know, a lot of what we would do is look at, you know, the sort of the, the plans of the ship and and work out sort of how to fortify it, both from an external perimeter perspective, but also thinking about if the pirates got on board, how you, would you slow their advance through the ship? How would you, you know, give the people time on the bridge to get into uh, the, what we call the citadel, which was like a protected, like a, like a panic room, I suppose, um, within the ship and stay safe. So it was a lot of things like that. And we put uh, armed guards on board the ships as well to, to act as a, a deterrent. Um, and it, I learned an awful lot about security in that a very, very short period of time. I mean, for, for a start, what was quite entertaining was I was the only woman in the company. The, everybody else was all ex, uh, ex-Royal Marines or ex-US uh, forces who, who were doing this as sort of private individuals. Um, and so it, it was great. It was a, a very steep learning curve. And I think I learned a lot about how difficult security is. And it's always this trade-off between making something usable and open and and sort of have this utility versus locking it completely down and fortifying it so no one can can breach it which is essentially what we do in cybersecurity now it's the same principle just taken from a ship and put into a, a sort of digital environment um and then i moved into police counterterrorism intelligence in the uk uh and then into one of the police cybercrime units in the uk and then set up my own company, Red Goat, which has been going for about five and a half years now. Wow. See, I, I stalked you on LinkedIn, as I do with all the guests. And obviously, I didn't see the pirate bit. I mean, that's quite fascinating. I mean, yes. I had we, we, we've we got somebody actually releasing a podcast soon, uh, Gina Yacon um, from the US. And she started off kind of in law enforcement and, and doing that kind of stuff, not not kind of protecting against pirates. Um do you think that really helped you in the kind of the cyber defense? I mean, in my mind, it's really very, very similar. Yeah. Um, we we talk about like the castle and moat and protecting it and how things have changed. And and for me, that's what cyber is like. So, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I'd like to say it sounds like fun, but in my head, I'm still seeing pirates from when I was a kid, which is clearly because I'm still haven't grown up yet. Um, but 
But well, Jay, I, I guess movie... Jay, I guess you need to go see the movie Captain Phillips. Get up to speed. I haven't seen that. So more you films. Need... So there you okay. go. But but Lisa, do you think it kind of helped you kind of in the mindset of like a cyber attacker? Is it, it Yeah, and I think I think the other thing that was really valuable for me is I think there's this level of naivety when we think about security that you can just secure everything. You can just, you know, you have it in your mind almost yeah. an infinite amount of money and resourcing, and then you can secure everything. But that's not reality. You have a set amount of money and resourcing. And then what is a very difficult question is how to use that in the most effective way, given you can't do everything. And I think that's what it really taught me, this really stark contrast, because it's physical and it's so obvious, you know, we have a certain amount of time and a certain amount of manpower, a certain amount of money. How are we going to invest that in securing the ship? And, you know, that obviously applies to companies and cybersecurity as well. No company has infinite amounts of money. So, so where do you put that? And that is really what security is all about for me. It's it's the ability to prioritize limited resources to have the maximum possible effect. Okay, so I have a bit of an odd question. So obviously when you're securing a ship from pirates, you have the ship. You know what your kind of crown jewels are. They're on your ship. Companies don't always know that, I've found. They don't always know what those kind of things are that they're trying to protect. Yeah. So obviously they don't have unlimited money. They have kind of a a set amount of resources. What is your advice for people to try and understand what it is they're going to protect? How do they understand what that kind of ship is that they need to put those protections around? Yeah, I mean, I I have this conversation with clients a lot, and I actually think the starting point is to start at the catastrophic worst case scenario and work backwards. And what I mean by that is if everything was down, if you cannot do anything, all your IT is gone, um, your data is exfiltrated, whatever whatever that catastrophic scenario is for you, what business processes can you no longer do at all? And then that that is what you've got to focus on because those now you can't do at all. So how are you going to have any level of business continuity during an attack? And if you work backwards like that, I think you can start identifying not just assets that are that are really critical to protect, but also processes that you just can't get around. I mean, for example, a law firm will have court deadlines. Those court deadlines aren't a discretionary deadline. That's a hard and fast, you need to file by this date, otherwise it doesn't happen. So if you can't electronically submit those files, how are you going to do that? That's now a critical thing that we need to consider. So I think that's the best way to always work from, you know, what what is that worst case scenario and what what can you not do if that happens? Yeah, I mean, I've worked... Um, most of my life in manufacturing companies and we would have kind of this debate internally about what do we need to protect and it always came down for us it was the manufacturing lines if you can't if you you can't manufacture you can't make any money the business is over so you have to protect the manufacturing and then it was like what was next okay it's the shipping because if you can manufacture equipment great but if you can't ship it out the door you're in trouble because it doesn't matter how much you manufacture so okay that's next and then maybe the next is, okay, payments. If you can manufacture and can ship, you need to collect the money. So yeah. we would do it in that kind of order. Um, but John, before we pivot to anything else, anything you want to ask on this particular topic? No, I, I, what I'm hearing, this is very much um, like, a, in a sense, zero trust. You're, you're looking at your protect services. You're figuring out where the, the weaknesses are, where your um, crown jewels are, and and figuring out a, you know, a protection plan against uh, 
let's say it, pirates uh, from Somalia. Uh, I, I love this analogy because it on cyber, it works so well. You know, you have this economic uh, incentive. You you have uh, certainly reconnaissance. Uh, you, you're building out protect surfaces, um, your crown jewels. You, you have your safe room, in a sense, on, on the ship. Uh, and if you kind of start to add more ships in, I, I'm sure, Lisa, this is what, you know, you were thinking about as well when you were doing this work is how do I position these ships to, you know, maybe there's one that you want them to take the bait, or maybe there's one that isn't as valuable as some of these other ships and you're arranging that their transit based on that. So, um, this analogy is, is, is outstanding. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's, it's really interesting as well, because it also brings into, I suppose, the uh, the discussion, the idea of kind of, I, I guess, the traditional way of describing it would be defense in depth, you know, so you have maybe barbed wire around the outside of your ship, and maybe you have water cannons on the outside of the ship, and that protects the ship from boarding, but it might not stop every pirate from boarding that ship. So if the pirate does get on board... Now, what do we do? What are our other options for slowing that pirate down or stopping them in their tracks? Well, we could weld doors shut, for example. The the trade-off of welding those doors shut is obviously the safety issue for the crew. So this is kind of where we are, right? We're at, right? Like if you encrypt absolutely everything, great, really secure, not hugely usable for your workforce on a day-to-day basis. So it's this forever trade-off between enough access to allow people to do their jobs and be productive. But similarly, enough security to make it hard or undesirable to attack. Yeah, and I think, as John said, very good analogy. I mean, I remember being a kid, you could walk along the street and pretty much open everyone's front door and go in and, and walk around because people trusted people. Then it then we moved on to kind of with cars, you could unlock any car, and we've made security more and more secure, I'll call it, over the last 20, 30 years. But sometimes at the detriment of efficiency or or business continuity or making things just simple for people to use. I mean, as I said before, coming from a manufacturing company, we had people that had worked there their whole careers. They started off as school leavers and they were still there until they retired. And they'd gone from having no passwords to having MFA and complexity. And we would get a lot of kind of pushback on why are you changing things? Why are you making it so difficult? And I think one of the things that we fail at as a, as a kind of community, and I mean cyber and IT in general, is explaining to people, why are we making these changes? Um, but sorry, John, I jumped in as you were about to say something. No, I, I was wanting to kind of understand uh, how we take this analogy and, and start to th- talk about ransomware. I know that's an area that you you know, you know work with. And again, it's it's involved in this analogy, you know, do we pay the ransom? Do we not pay the ransom? Um, and the economics of the of the pirates. Um, there's a lot of conversation now around the economic impact of, of ransomware and, and how it's going to play out over the next five years. I mean, I saw one blog where they're talking trillions of dollars of economic impact uh, due to these sorts of attacks. Um, how do you see the that landscape playing out. Uh, I, I understand you're out there on the day-to-day basis. Um, are you seeing any improvement in the terms of ransomware or um, are we uh, headed down to a darker path? Um, I think there's been, there's been a couple of reports saying that it's on the decline. I've also seen a couple of reports saying it's not, uh, as is so often the case in cybersecurity. 
I think the the mistake that some people have made is they've, they've spoken about how Bitcoin payments are down, which is technically true. But we've also seen an uptick in Monero payments. So what I suspect is probably more likely is post-colonial pipeline, which was a hugely sort of shake-up event, really, for the ransomware actor, threat actor community. Um, I think there was a marked shift into looking into other cryptocurrencies and privacy coins in particular to move money because the FBI, although they didn't recover all of it, they recovered some of the money that Colonial Pipeline had paid. Um, and this obviously caused a level of disruption and concern in the ransomware threat actor community. Um, so I think you have to be quite careful with the data. So if you see someone saying Bitcoin payments are down, well, that's not necessarily indicative of ransomware attacks being down. Um, I think we've also seen a huge uptick, actually, in uh, ransomware attacks in South America. Um, and this is, again, really problematic for a number of reasons. I've written a blog on this. Um, firstly, it finances these ransomware groups uh, further, thus allowing them to innovate and create problems for, for us in, in, uh, in Europe and, and the United States. But I think also... It allows them to test techniques and it allows them to test tactics on companies uh, without drawing attention uh, of the FBI, which I think has typically been the very marked shift we've seen in the last few years, which is sort of a bit like the war in Ukraine in the sense that we're talking about a below the threshold attack, right? So just enough to cause problems, not enough to bring, in that case, NATO, in this case, the FBI, um, attention onto the ransomware groups, which is definitely what they don't want. So I think there's a I don't think we can safely say it's on decline. I think it's probably going to be a, a significant problem for a number of years uh, more. And we've said this every single year, so it will probably go on in perpetuity. Um, in terms of payment, it's a very complicated issue. And it's something that I try to separate the morality element of it from the practicality and business element of it, because they're not the same thing. And I think it's very we, we'll all sit here and agree that paying cyber criminals clearly isn't a good investment. It's clearly building ourselves into a corner and, and causing all sorts of future problems. However, from a business perspective, that's often not the case. From an insurance perspective, it's often not the case either. And they'll advocate for paying simply because the costs of recovery are often so large that the ransom is, is you know, makes financial sense. And I think that's, that's the problem that we're in. Um, you know, similarly with this double extortion uh, ransomware attacks where they exfiltrate data, they have you over a bit of a barrel, really. Um, and for that, I think that's why we've seen so many organizations opt to pay. Um, and it's very, it becomes a very complicated moral issue because in a sense, then they don't dump the data. So you're protecting some of your consumers from that harm manifesting. But by paying, you are inevitably funding a cycle of crime that will cause more harm. So it's a very, very strange um, ecosystem that we've ended up immersed in. And a lot of facilities have been created on our side, really, to facilitate it. I mean, insurance, ransomware negotiators, even law firms who will provide due diligence assurance on the group, you know, in order to evade uh, problems with sanctions and, and, and so on and so forth. So. I think in a way we've sort of played a really, uh, we, we've made some really fundamental mistakes maybe five or six years ago that we're now really paying for because there's not a solution. Yeah, I think you've highlighted some some great points there. I, I 
I think paying the ransom, as you said, is 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 morally a difficult one. But if you're on the board and and you're trying to determine like what do I do next, it's either do I let my company potentially die and go under because we can't get the data and we're in a bit of a problem, or do we pay this bill? Um, and it is it's it's difficult to separate the kind of morality away from paying the ransom, but it is such a, such a difficult topic because like you said, we are backing ourselves into a corner. Um, But I want to go back to the the first bit you said that I've noticed that there has been press that's saying ransomware is kind of going away. And I don't necessarily believe that's true. In fact, I don't believe that's true at all. I think, as you've said that, they're moving away from people looking at it. I mean, there's been a big deal in the US recently of zero trust, and there are eyes on security breaches, and there are eyes on ransomware. But if you move down to South America, or you move to Africa, or you move to some of the areas where things aren't, like the FBI don't exist, there aren't so many eyes on it, then there could be just as many attacks going on in those places that we just don't know about, and we're not physically aware of. And as you said, if you keep people's eyes off of it, they kind of forget about it. I think when it's in the press all the time, people are more actively doing stuff about it. If people get this kind of sense that things are going away, they might stop those investments. They mm-hmm. might stop doing the things that they're doing today. Um, and I think Colonial Pipeline was a big mistake. And I think the ransomware threat actor community recognized it as a big mistake. It was a big fish that attracted way too much attention from US law enforcement, which was a terrible disaster for them and they hadn't properly washed the money through the bitcoin blockchain and they got caught out and some of that got recouped and i think it sent shockwaves i really do which in some ways is really good from a disruptive perspective on our side but what you have to realize is that if you disrupt a marketplace it's going to essentially innovate and and mold itself in a different way to continue it's not just going to disappear and go okay well we got caught out that's the end of that game it's just going to continue in a different vein. So this is the problem that we find ourselves in. You've just got to be innovating as quickly as possible. And like you said, you've got to be looking at other countries and other areas. What are they doing in those areas? Because that will come back to bite us in a few years if we don't do that. Yeah, because I think if we do close all the doors to ransomware, and I don't quite know how we do that, but if we were to do that, like you said, people will just innovate something else. They come up with another way, a different way. I mean, because I've definitely seen attacks change over the last 20 years. It used to be kind of viruses and all that kind of stuff. And I ransomware. And, and I wonder, what, what do you think? Let's say ransomware. Let's say in three to five years, we've cleared it all up. We've knocked it on the head. We live in a dream world where it's gone. What other things do you think um, are likely to be on people's minds that they should really be being proactive now and, and kind of closing those doors? Well, I think there'll still be extortion attacks because ultimately they're the most lucrative. So, you know, I think it will just take a different form. It might not be, it might be data exfiltration. It might be supply chains being held hostage. It might be cloud-based uh, services being held hostage. But ultimately the extortion structure is not new at all. It's been going on since human beings have been interacting on an economic level and it's really effective. And so it's going to carry on because a lot of these groups, their businesses, we saw in the Conti leaks, it's run like an enterprise, almost identical to us, which gives us, there's pros and cons to that. You know, on, on some level, 
they operate as a business. And the one thing that our side understand really well is business. So in some ways, we speak the same language and can understand and predict where this might be going. Um, but similarly, you know, ultimately, to make money, you have to you have to hold things to ransom. So I don't yeah. think we'll ever be in a situation where this won't be a problem on some level. So, so we, we let, talk. Sorry, go on, John. No, I was going to say, let's get into some recommendations. Uh, I know that you you know consult with a number of of companies out there, leaders. Uh, and when it comes to ransomware and similar attacks, um, what are some of the recommendations? And, and you can you can state from both a leadership perspective, from a technology perspective. But uh, what what do you do in your consulting to you know when a leader comes to you and says, "Hey, I'm worried about ransomware. How can I prepare for that?" Um, yeah, so I think have specific ransomware plans and playbooks um, that you've developed in order to know what you would do, how you would handle it, uh, so on and so forth. You know how you would even even talking about with your board you know, in what circumstances would we consider paying a ransom? I'm not saying document it, definitely don't write it down and leave it on your network somewhere. But having the dialogue about when you might pay, um, how you would acquire Bitcoin or Monero or whatever that would be, because it's not a a quick process that's going to take you, you know, 30 seconds to do. Um, And then testing those plans. So running with your your gold team or your silver team, um, your instant response teams, your crisis management teams, you know, exercises on how you would handle it. Because every single time I run one, no matter how mature an organization is, even if they run them six monthly, for example, they always discover things that are not quite right in the plan or things that wouldn't work, so on and so forth. Even little things like how are we going to have out-of-band communication, assuming that our network's down and our email's down and we don't have an ability to use Teams, for instance, what would we then use? Um, so all these things really help you put you in a good position, because one thing you don't want is you, if you are hit with ransomware, you want to be in a position where you can handle it as best as possible. The, the time when you're kind of on the back foot is when you're panicked and everything's going really wrong. You don't have a lot of negotiating power at that point. The other thing I would say is to, to look at what could happen in these attacks and what has happened in your industry um in these sorts of attacks so you know making sure that username and passwords if they were stolen are are useless so i i have a question and we talk a lot on on this podcast about zero trust and and i think we've kind of walked down the path a little bit now to to have the question of do you think it's just a buzzword or do you think it will help with all of these that we all of these topics we've just discussed i think it is used as a buzzword by some people um, but I actually really, I, I really like the concept. And I think that um, ultimately, that's where we, we need to move to. Um, and I think, you know, on the side of that, I suppose, in some ways attached to that is is the issue of authentication as well. And how we're doing that. I mean, I, I recently just to sort of pull it in, um, for example, Twitter, there was this whole thing about Twitter removing SMS um, to FA. Fine. I agree. It probably costs money. What was more interesting, though, than the move to do that was the fact that only 2% of all Twitter accounts have any MFA set up, any at all. 2%. Which is just unbelievable that in this day and age, in something really simple like a social media account, which is very, very simple to set up MFA, we've got 2%. And I think that's... Do you think that's that's just because... The person on the street, the person that works outside of like what we do and in IT or security, do you think that's just because they don't 
understand firstly what MFA or 2FA or whatever it may be are also and and, and on top of that they don't understand why they'd need it yeah I think I think it's a bit of both I think there's also just an apathy towards having to do things that provide um or produce I suppose I suppose um friction to doing something um and it's oh you know if I set it up I have to do this that takes time that I need to every time I log in this has to happen and that takes more time um and I think that's why we saw a little bit of a pushback with a lot of the e-commerce sites because I remember having conversations probably two years ago now just pre-covid with several of them that were talking about how if you add a requirement for MFA what happens is it delays the amount of time between putting something into your basket to actually being able to pay for it. And that time is critical for sales. And that time has to be as small as possible. And so they didn't want to add MFA because it would slow that process down and people might leave and go someplace else. And that that comes back to what we were saying at the very beginning about the, the problem is making something secure enough without it becoming, I suppose, a problem for business. And this is what we're always up against. But ultimately, it's we need to move away, in my opinion, from passwords. We need to move away from this traditional authentication method where every single account is, you know, separate and everyone's just creating a username and password for everything they use and spraying it all over the Internet. Um, and it's just I think the frustrating thing in security often is that a lot of these attacks aren't even very sophisticated. They're very, very basic. Then even against really large organizations, they're things like cred stuffing or, you know, someone's account has got too many permissions and they can access a whole lot of stuff they shouldn't be able to do. And it's frustrating in a sense, I think, to see how something so simple that can be changed isn't, and that's facilitating this, disastrous situation yeah we talk a lot about getting the basics right and and for me identification and and authentication are the basics i mean i spoke recently at a conference and i talked about um i used to work in a company and the hr team would quite often fail to tell us somebody had left for days weeks or months so being the it team we're not just going to randomly look people's accounts so we would find out, oh, so-and-so left six months ago. And you'd look and you'd be like, they're still logging in. Their VPN's still running. They haven't accessed any systems, luckily. So it may just be they're still using the same computer. We didn't take the computer off them because we didn't know they'd left. We haven't shut down accounts because we didn't know they've left. And really, none of that's about technology. Do you know what I mean? That's just about following process. We would pay people's phone bills for six months or a year because nobody had said they'd left. So therefore, we just thought they were still an active user. And if you've got a 10-person company and you can look around and go, Fred's not here anymore, I'll lock them down, fine. But if you're in a company that's 10,000 people and those 10,000 people now are hybrid and you might not see them for months at a time, Fred could be gone six months before anyone's like, well, where's Fred? And and we we clearly just need to get those basics right. And I think that's and when that's when zero right. trust comes in, and is I think is really powerful because yeah. in this day and age, people are not working all from the office like they were before, right? That was a different time, and maybe there's an argument that it wasn't as useful in that situation. But now, 
not only are we working from home, potentially people, you know, do these uh, remote working things from other countries where they do the sort of, I can't remember what it's called now, the nomad, digital nomad lifestyle or whatever yeah. it's called. They're working from different devices. They're working from all these different things. So unless you're applying something where you're saying that actually uh, nothing can be trusted, no devices, you know, implicitly nothing can be trusted and it has to, you know, meet a certain set of requirements in order to, to pass that. I think you're sort of making it into a into an issue, really, because that's not the reality in how we work anymore. Yeah, the world's a much different place than it was three years ago, five years ago. I mean, we we and I've we me and John speak about this all the time that the pandemic came along, people got up, they left, they went home, the world's changed, innovation went crazy. Yeah. But IT teams went out and bought loads of systems to to ensure their businesses could continue to work. Yeah. And instead of doing their normal due diligence and risk assessments, they just went to the shop and said, I need a remote access solution because mine doesn't work. I'll buy it. I'll move stuff to the cloud. I'll do all this stuff. And we see nowadays what's happening is people are now reviewing all those decisions with the eyes that they had before and going, we now need to secure this stuff. We've moved really, really quickly, but we've, and I'm going to be blunt about it, they've cut corners to keep the business running because that's what IT teams do. And now you've got the security team going, you cut what? You did what? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you, like, and data implement ends an up MFA everywhere. and teaching everyone? Data yeah. ends up everywhere. I was telling this to someone the other day. If you think about if you, I don't know, let's say I send you a WhatsApp message and then you screenshot that WhatsApp message on your iPhone, that's now backed up to your iCloud, right? So that's another yep. place that that data is. It's also on your iPhone. It's on my iPhone as well, or my Android phones, but maybe that backs up to my Google Cloud. Before you know it, that message is probably in 50 different places. And yep. you don't even know where it is anymore, unless you've process mapped every element of where that image or that message went you have no clue where where every instance of that message is. And that's, I think, also the problem that we've ended up with. It just spreads and you end up with data absolutely everywhere. Um, there's a lot of talk at the moment of people moving back out of the cloud and putting things back on-prem. And I'm pretty glad that I've pivoted out of having a role that would make me responsible <laughs> for that because I honestly would not want to be trying to get something out of the cloud and put it on prem and and i mean that is hard enough as it is but then trying to convince the business it no longer is in any of the cloud anywhere because i don't think anybody hand on heart is ever going no, to be able to say agreed. that so agreed um but john anything on this topic before we pivot to one more question before we get to the fun stuff no I, I, yeah i'm curious um you know there's a lot of talk right now about government getting involved uh we have in the us uh, the, the Biden cyber strategy just came out last week, and there was, you know, conversation around public-private partnership in relation to ransomware was was called out. Um, we see some regulation within the U.S. states. You know, forty-five states currently have legislation of some form or fashion involving cyber PII. Um, it seems the regulatory environment starting to pick up and and they're starting to think about, hey, we need to do something about ransomware. I'm curious, are you seeing similar uh, over in the UK and, and in Europe? Definitely uh, conversations uh, of that effect in the UK. France has obviously moved ahead with requiring mandatory disclosure to the police, which they did, I think, last month. 
Um, so definitely it's moving ahead of, I think across the world, those discussions are happening. And it is positive that we're getting um, sort of our elected representatives involved and showing an interest. However, one of, I think, the key areas that we need to really have more visibility in and um, effectiveness in is the cryptocurrency landscape. And one thing that I'm sort of become a bit disappointed in is the unwillingness of governments to tackle that question. Because actually, the big machine, the big engine that drives all of this is the ability to make money. And cryptocurrency allows the washing of money pretty effectively at scale. Um, and we have almost no visibility. There is some, there are some companies that have some, some visibility, although not so much on privacy coins like Monero. Um, and I just think that we've kind of, we've got this situation where we've allowed the cryptocurrency world to build up. We haven't got involved um, with regulation or with, um, even in a cybersecurity manner, having dialogues with people in the crypto space and, and building it in a secure manner. And it's grown and grown and grown, and now it's our problem. And I think that's what happens with cybersecurity. We don't engage with new tech. We sort of say, oh, this is stupid. This is insecure. This is rubbish. It happens, and then it's our problem. Yeah, it's, it's, we, we sometimes create their own problems ourselves, right? Which is a difficult one. Um, before we get on to the fun stuff, one question. Um, Cyber Volunteers 19. Tell us what it's all about and why you started it. Um, so it's not running anymore. It was run purely for the pandemic. And what happened was when the pandemic hit in what March 2020, um, which now seems like a very long time ago, um, one yep. thing we were seeing a lot of in Europe was hospitals who were being targeted with attacks, um, which makes sense if you're an attacker, right? Because these are entities that are under huge amounts of pressure and huge amounts of media focus more likely to pay them a ransom, more likely to, you know, do anything they can to continue operations. So they made very good targets from that perspective. And in Europe, predominantly, like a lot of the healthcare is quite chronically underfunded as a government, um, you know, state run entity. Um, and so some of the hospitals had two people in the IT team, two. And we had one hospital where one of those individuals got COVID. So essentially 50% of your IT security team was no longer available during a critical yeah. time. So we we sort of, a group of us, myself, Rad and, and my friend Dan got together and we sort of said, okay, look, how can we use our skills to provide some help to these, these entities free of charge, even if it's just passing on vulnerability information? And that basically went from three of us to almost 3,000 people in a, a couple of weeks. It was insane. Just loads of cyber people just saying, anything you need, let me know. We ran European-wide um, awareness campaigns for all of the staff that were translated into every single European language. We had um, vulnerability information going out. We had all sorts of stuff happening. Um, and it was it was great. It was completely unmanageable. And I, one thing I learned from it was don't try and run a big voluntary <laughs> um, project because it's a nightmare. Um, but what was really nice was to see that actually the community really pulled together and were really happy to help in any way they could, which I thought was brilliant. And, and to be fair, that highlights one of the reasons why I really like being in IT and cyber. It's because we've got to the point now where everyone 
likes to help each other. We have so many guests on here that give give their time up for free. And I truly believe that if we don't work together against this enemy, we're not going to be able to win. There shouldn't that we should not be competing against each other mm -hmm. because like supply chains mean that you can't just throw money at your company and protect your company and not worry about anybody else because somebody else is going to get compromised up your supply chain or down your supply chain and then you're going to get infected. So I'm really happy. And I see it on LinkedIn all the time. We see people helping each other. We see people trying to help people get into the industry or get promoted or pass tests or working together and sharing information. And and I really love it. Um, but let's move on. We're getting a bit short on time. And, and I really want to ask you some kind of fun stuff because <laughs> I've seen you've been all over the place on LinkedIn. So firstly, I want to ask, really about Japan and and you do ice climbing is that right <laughs> yeah I'm a climber I climb technical mountains so I specialize I suppose you could say specialize in ice and mixed climbing which is using ice axes to climb up vertical ice or using ice axes to sort of hook into rocks and pull yourself up the sides of mountains that, that's what I do I mean that just <laughs> seems for me that seems absolutely scary and a little bit like frightening and and but but I mean, Japan must be a fantastic place to do it. Did you go up to, is it Nagano, that kind of yes. north of Tokyo? So, yeah, that's where the Japanese Alps are. Um, they're, they're, they're amazing. I mean, Japanese winter conditions are great for climbers like myself who want to branch out into the Himalayas and do some Himalayan climbing because it's so, so cold in Japan. The J Japanese winters yep. in the Alps, you know, minus 20 to minus 30 degrees C is is common. Um, huge amounts of snowfall, huge amounts of ice. You just don't get those temperatures in Europe anymore. Nowhere near. Um, we're sort of at minus one, minus two at maximum, even in the Alps. Um, so it's a perfect proving ground, I suppose, for testing gear and testing your resilience. So that's why I go there. Plus, I absolutely love Japan. So any excuse to go so back. <laughs> first question before we talk about Japan is, why ice climbing i mean climbing is hard enough as it is yes. why make it even harder by doing it on ice and have to do it in the cold i mean i i, I don't even like climbing if i could climb in my shorts if <laughs> i have to wear clothes that protects me against minus 20 minus 25 and climb on ice i i just need to get my head around why would you want to do that i guess I was dropped on a he my head as a child, probably, or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, I just love it. It's brilliant. It's, ice is a crazy medium. It's incredibly strong, incredibly brittle. It's weird. It's self-healing. Every day you go back, it's different because it's melted a bit and frozen. And it's crazy. Um, it's incredibly dangerous, but it's, it's just brilliant fun. And I just feel that it's so engaging and so all-encompassing. My focus is just on what I'm doing. And I find that almost like meditation. So it's yeah. very... No, I, I mean, so I was very lucky to live in Japan for about a year. And, and I started karate when I was younger at school. And then when I went to Japan, I trained karate in Japan. That was a, so different. And the culture is so different. The people are so different. And it's quite a closed country. Um, but I want to ask you a question about food, because some of my best ever food experiences were in Japan. Now, I've kind of changed the way I asked this question. It used to be tell me about the best thing you've eaten, but now it's more a case of the best experience in relation to food. It doesn't have to be Japan for you, but what's been your best food experience? Oh, Kazakhstan. 
Kazakhstan, which you would not think. When I went to Kazakhstan, I was fully prepared to have absolutely atrocious food. And my biases was were saying, this is going to be absolutely awful. And, you know, you're probably going to get food poisoning and it's going to be horrible and you're not going to like it. But the food was just fantastic. It was yeah the kazakh food is absolutely amazing um so i would highly recommend them and it was a surprise so i suppose that adds to the tell us tell us a little bit about the kazakhstan food what um what did you enjoy about it how's it made so What's so it involved? they have it's, it's very slavic food i would say um but it's kind of also got it's quite unique because it's sort of got the sort of russian slavic um angle to it but it's also got the Persian angle to it, given its location in Central Asia. So it's got these two things that come together. So there's lots of amazing rices that have things like orange in them and um, saffron and other stuff like that, which is just amazing. It kind of comes from the sort of more Persian Asian influence. And then you've also got the sort of more Slavic, um, sort of goulash-esque food, which is also really nice. Um, but yeah, they just are really the, the best thing about Kazakh people is I've never met a group of people who are so generous and open and kind to tourists when they don't need to be. And they don't have many tourists, to be fair to them. Um, but making you food and having this pride in making a dish and handing it to you. And if you're on the train, people share their lunch with you and you're supposed to share your lunch back and everyone brings treats for everybody else on the train. And it's like. It's just the whole thing feeds into it, I think. And it just becomes this really wonderful communal experience that I just, I fell in love with. Well, why did you choose to go there then? Was it because you, did you already know what you wanted to do or was it just kind of on a whim type? I wanted to go granite climbing, climbing granite walls. So I Googled and I found this Reddit thread and someone in this obscure thing had written at the bottom, oh, Kazakhstan's got good granite. And so I just went, okay. I'm going to go to Kazakhstan. So I booked a flight, <laughs> got a car and then went to <laughs> Kazakhstan. So it was kind of really random. And I sort of did it more as like a recce trip to sort of see what the climbing possibilities were there, but it was just a great yep. adventure and such a safe country. So welcoming, really. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. See, I've always wanted to go to that type of area of the world. So I think now we've had this discussion, I'm going to have to, to add it further up my list um but we're i mean i've just looked down at the clock time's flying um i'm going to ask you one more question to give john a chance to think about one more question before we leave um you've clearly traveled to many places from the sounds of it i see on linkedin you've traveled we've spoken about japan and kazakhstan and kind of places where not many people would go yes um where's the best place you've ever been why I'm going to have to say it was, oh, it's a difficult one. It's definitely between South Korea, Japan and Kazakhstan, I would say, as the top three. And they've all got very different things about them. I mean, I think for me, one thing I really enjoy is that kind of adventurous venturing out and experiencing a new culture, especially somewhere that's less well mapped and traveled than, say, Spain yeah. or somewhere like that. Um, and I really enjoy, you know, being in that environment and having to almost problem solve your way out of a lot of situations. Um, so, so it really feeds into that. I think in all three cases, people are really friendly. Um, obviously, Kazakhstan, they speak Russian largely, South Korean and and, uh, and Japanese in Japan. And the, the English isn't amazing, 
but actually I think you come away from the experience not just having seen certain sites but really feeling like you've grown as a person and had to sort of work hard for the experience a little bit and that gives you that satisfaction that you don't necessarily get lying on a beach so so I'm assuming you're not a low on a beach type no. person you much prefer just to throw a backpack on your Correct. back and off you go very much so and yeah. I think I've found that actually generally speaking people in all these places are really grateful to see you they're so happy to have tourism coming in and they can't wait to show you what they do and all the rest of it and I've never had really any animosity in any of those sorts of places yeah, sounds good. I mean, that's my type of holiday. I can't lie on a beach. <laughs> I, I've I've backpacked. I mean, I, I've not been to anywhere like Kazakhstan, but I have backpacked across Japan, China, Thailand, Cambodia. I mean, I, I I like a little luxury now and again, like the middle of the week, I might kick back in a nice place where there's a pool and I can get a, and I can wash, for instance. But I'm quite happy just to throw a bag on my back and just go. Um, but John, anything before we wrap from yeah, you? Yeah, so you've traveled you know, all points of the globe. Um, I'm going to go back to food. Uh, what's the most <laughs> oddest thing you've eaten that you thought, oh, I'm not going to like this, but you actually like, hey, that was amazing. Um, Actually, you know what? I've just come back from the Polish Tatras. Um, and one thing that's, um, I guess, something that I wouldn't normally eat is the, in, in Polish cuisine, they eat a lot of gherkins. And it's not something that I would eat maybe a slice or something in a burger but not really as a whole gherkin um and actually they put these gherkins on a plate and it's like that's your starter eat the, the gherkin there's nothing else just eat the the long massive you know and I really liked it it was awesome and I just thought you know I think sometimes when you're in that environment just go for it and if you stick to things I tend to find also in these countries if you eat the things that they eat they actually almost always are good if you yeah. try and eat their version of our food, it's almost always rubbish. So <laughs> that's my good piece of uh, salient advice for traveling. Yeah, and to, to be honest, John's trying to get me to eat pineapple on pizza, no, which no, just... don't do that. It's a, absolutely it's a crime against humanity, and Italy yeah. will not accept it as. I mean, I love going to Italy. I've spent a lot of time in Italy. I like Italian food. I like pizza, and I'm really concerned that if I ever say I've had pizza. With pineapple on it, the Italians just won't let me anyway, back in there. Half, sure. or majority yeah. of the pizzas in the United States, the Italians wouldn't allow you back in. And we've we've got so many, <laughs> so many different ways of having a pizza. Uh, Jay, we just need to expand your horizons. No, no, we, we need don't. We need to contract tour. your horizons, John. That's what <laughs> <I'm saying. laughs> so, Lisa, I'd like to thank you in, in in your busy schedule for coming on and talking to us talking about the tech i think the pirate thing's a very great analogy i've loved the kind of fun questions i, I mean my heart still hankers after japan I, I loved my time there i've got a lot of friends there and i, I really need to get back and see people um, but it's been great thank you for coming thank you on for having me i really enjoyed it thank you no problem Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SEC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.